tons of thank yous need to go out uh, to people in our church family uh, for bringing the worship uh, space into this this area. A lot of people involved in getting sound equipment out of there and into here. A lot of people involved with getting chairs uh, borrowed and placed into here so that we could all uh, fit and worship and be comfortable in this space. And I would I would leave people out if I started naming names. So I just want to thank uh, all those. And if you encounter anybody that you know of uh, that's been involved in that, be sure and thank them as well. Um, if you go by uh, the worship space and, and take a peek in there, you'll notice that uh, the pews are, are not in there. They're gone. We had a team uh, connected to a Baptist mission in South Texas come uh, early in the week, kind of braving some of the ice and cold that we had. Uh, they took all those out, uh, and they're going to end up in churches in South Texas and even um, I think specifically there's a church right across the border uh, that those pews are going to end up uh, uh, being placed in. So we're excited that those are going somewhere to be used. Uh, Vernon Lee, uh, some of you may know Vernon in town, uh, he was the connection that made that happen, and he said that he's going to come back uh, at some point uh, in the next few months when those pews get placed and just give a report, maybe show some pictures and uh, and let us know how those have been used. So that's exciting. There are some pews left in the balcony. Uh, they did not take those. There are some shorter ones, all wood ones that are cut down. If you have interest in any of those, if you want one of those, um, go take a look at those this morning. You can contact me or, or uh, Randy Ham's been a point of contact on that, um, and we can get those accounted for, uh, and, and you can have one of those for uh, you know, a, a piece in your home or, uh, or something else, whatever you might use one of those t- uh, types of things for, all right? Okay, well, you're welcome to go in there. The balcony door is open, so you can go up and take a look at those if you want to. And you get a bird's eye view of the blank slate that is now the the worship space, and you can see how clean the carpet is. Um, um, I'll start with a joke. Uh, This was a joke I was going to share last week. It was very appropriate. A country parson had made a commitment to his church that no matter the weather conditions, he would always be at the church on Sunday mornings to hold services. Just so happens, one Sunday morning, the pastor struggled through the worst blizzard in memory, arriving at the church to find a sole farmer there, ready for worship. He congratulated the farmer on his perseverance, but suggested that they forgo the service for lack of attendance. The farmer said, well, if I take a load of hay out to feed the cows and only one shows up, I still feed it. Chagrined, the pastor held a complete service singing, readings, communion, and an hour-long expository sermon, even an altar call. After finishing the service, the pastor asked the farmer, well, how was that? Well, replied the farmer, when I take hay out to feed the cows and only one shows up, I don't dump the whole load on him. (laughs) Too true. Isaac Watts is often called the father of English hymnody. Among other great songs, Watts wrote the classic anthem, Joy to the World. He penned those lyrics in 1719. He wrote it as a celebration of Christ's second coming. And despite the song's clear emphasis on the second advent, the second coming of Christ, it has, as you know, become become one of the best-loved Christmas songs in the world. So a song that's meant to celebrate his second coming, we've applied to his first coming, which that alone, I think, highlights the tension of Christmas. 
The tension of Christmas is that Christ has come, and he's done an awesome work. He took on flesh. He grew in stature and wisdom. He lived a sinless life. He, he, he died a violent death in our place. He rose again on the third day, claiming victory over, over sin for all those who trust in him. And that's an awesome work. That's an awesome thing. But equally as important and equally as awesome is the, is the promise that he will come again, and he will finish what he started. So as we are people who live in that tension, the tension between Christ's flesh and blood incarnation and his future bodily resurrection, resurrection of believers from every tribe and tongue and nation, consider afresh these lyrics from Watts. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace. And makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. It's a great song. And you may not know this, but Watts' hymn was based on Psalm 98. It's the psalm that I opened our service with today. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with lyre, with lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And then, this is what I didn't read as it moves on. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. All of Psalm 98, it traces the path of redemptive history from that first gospel promise that we see in Genesis 3.15 to the eschatological consummation, the end of it all, the new heavens, really the beginning of it all, the new heavens and the new earth. So the, the, the psalm begins, as you read it, in verses 1 through 3 with a, with a personal praise to God as, as king who has saved Israel in the past. Then it issues a call for the world to praise God as king in the present. That's what I've just read. And then it concludes calling the entire cosmos, again as I just read, to praise God as judge and eternal king. Making comment on Psalm 98, the great theologian St. Augustine, he explained, he said, to rightly understand Psalm 98 is to be well instructed in the school of Christ. And Watts, Watts, the writer of of Joy to the World, he understood that to speak of Christ rightly, one must speak of his whole mission. Not just the baby in a manger, not just the Savior on a cross, but the King who comes. And so though Watts never intended for Joy to the World to be a Christmas hymn, it's an appropriate one. Singing joy to the world in celebration of the incarnation, what we've just moved out of this Christmas season. Singing that song, it helps keep us from a mere sentimental celebration of Christmas because it directs us towards Christ 
toward Christ and his gospel mission. It says, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's where we finished two weeks ago. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. That it pleased God to crush the Son because of what the Son would accomplish for the Father. What, what would it accomplish for their father? It would accomplish the redemption and the adoption of many sons to glory. So in, in, our Advent, in our Advent emphasis this year, I've declared to you several things about Jesus. I've said that Jesus is hope. So that thing that we all require to lift us through the worst of seasons and the worst of days and the worst of moments, hope, it is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. I've also declared that Jesus is peace. We cannot, we cannot seek ultimate glory in any created thing. We can't seek glory in the stuff of creation and expect to be at peace. Only if we glory in Christ will we know peace. And then I mentioned love, and I said to you, Jesus is love. The sending of the Son was the ultimate expression of love. No other way would have said as much about God's heart of love for you, for his people, than the sending of Jesus Christ. So today, so today we come to joy. The outflow of all this truth about Jesus that I've mentioned is joy. And, one, and we're going to look at this in, in one of the great passages on, on joy, which is in one of the great chapters on joy, in one of the great books on joy, that you have in your Bible. So turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, if you're not there already. And from Philippians chapter 4, I'm not going to so much as make a case for joy. <clears throat> I think we've done that the last, really, month here. All that Christ is and all that Christ has done is cause for joy. So the, so the cause for joy case has been made. If you have responded to Christ and trusted in Christ, and worship Christ, and instead of yourself, or instead of a million other things that the world tries to get you to worship, if you're looking to Christ, you're already leaning in the direction of joy. The joy case has been made. What I'm going to do from Philippians 4 is give you three resolutions for the new year that are rooted in joy. So Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. This is the Apostle Paul. He writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Don't know if you are a resolution person. Don't know if you've made resolutions yet. Don't know if you've broken resolutions yet. I don't know if you're the resolution type. I read a stat this week that said 38% of Americans don't make New Year's resolutions, which if this is a New Year's resolution sermon, that means about a th- really more than a third of you will not be listening this morning, which might be about average anyway, I'm not sure. But. <laughs> and so the resolutions that I am pulling out of Philippians 4, 4 through 7 are these, rejoice in the Lord, be reasonable, and thankfully pray. And then the result of doing those three things 
is peace. So let's look at the, at the first of these resolutions. Rejoice in the Lord. First, Paul says to rejoice. In fact, he says it twice. And again, I say rejoice. Now, did you ever think of joy as a command? When we think of the things the Lord has commanded, do we think of joy? Do we? The Bible actually commands us to rejoice or to have joy some 500 times. That's a lot of times. 18 times in the book of Philippians, Paul says to have joy or rejoice. In a four-chapter book, that's a lot of times. And I think the reason the Scriptures constantly push us toward joy is because we worship a God who is fundamentally joyful. Think about that. We worship a God who is fundamentally joyful. When you think of God, do you think of Him as joyful? How do you view God's disposition? Frustrated? Stern? Terse? Stoic? Calloused? Unfeeling? I don't know how you think of God when you think about God. But the Bible reveals to us a God who is fundamentally joyful. Psalm 115 states, God is in the heavens doing whatever pleases Him. Whatever pleases Him. If you were in a situation where you were constantly, continually, perpetually doing whatever pleased you, what would your disposition be? Consider Zephaniah 3.17 where it speaks of the Lord who is rejoicing and singing with gladness over the hearts of the people that have returned to Him. If you have people that have, that have surrendered themselves and repented of their sins and, 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 are, and are worshiping God the Father, he, he is rejoicing and singing with gladness over their hearts. Do you, do you think of God as fundamentally pleased, as rejoicing and, and singing over you, singing over you with gladness? I hope that you do. I hope that you think of God that way. Because try to imagine what it would be like if the God who ruled the world were not happy. What if God were frustrated and despondent and gloomy and dismal and dejected? Could we worship a God like that? Would we pray to a God like that? I don't think we would. I don't think we could. We would have to relate to God like the children of a gloomy, dismal, discontented father, like, like sons and daughters who can't enjoy their dad. Those kids who don't run to their father's arms. They just try not to bother him. They just try to stay away. I quote G.K. Chesterton a lot. He was an English poet and a columnist. He, he lived in the early 20th century. I actually looked for a couple of books that I knew I had of his this week, and I guess I've loaned them out. Um, I know I've had two different copies of his, of his book, Orthodoxy, but they've both left my office, so I've been generous with those. But <clears throat> he wrote this about, about, uh, about God in his book, Orthodoxy. And this is one of my favorite all-time passages. Listen closely. Here's, here's a, bunch of, a bunch of material, a bunch of thought-provoking um, ideas. He's speaking of children. He says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. 
But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we are. That's a picture painted beautifully there. That's a picture of a joyous God, a God of wonder and joy. When we view God as Chesterton does, as pleased and joyful and happy and smiling, it makes sense that one of the core commands given to those who worship Him is joy. Yet it seems, doesn't it, it seems we are prone to sadness and negativity and despondency and and that's likely because we are consumed, so consumed with a world that is very sad and very negative and very despondent. And for a lack of a better way to say it, it seems we are addicted to evaluating our own circumstances in this sad and despondent place. We're always taking inventory of things in our life. We're saying, okay, I have plenty of money right now, so I'm happy. I'm healthy right now, so I'm happy. My kids are obedient, so I'm happy. My spouse is serving me and doing what I want him or her to do, so I'm happy. But, but you turn even one of those phrases around, one of those seemingly superficial phrases around, and say, man, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to make ends meet. Not happy. My spouse is being selfish. Not happy. My health is failing. Not happy. My life has taken this unexpected turn. Not happy. And so we allow our circumstances to destroy our joy. And let me just say, if that's true of you, which it is for me often, it may just be that you never had joy to begin with. You never had joy in the first place. You had happenstances that happened to be happy, but that's not joy. Joy is distinct from happiness. Joy is an inner gladness of heart that's not dependent upon outward circumstances. Let me say that again. Joy is an inner gladness of heart that is not dependent upon outward circumstances. But for so many of us, we cannot have the joy of the Lord in all circumstances because our functional Lord is our circumstances. So perhaps the reason we don't have joy is because We have the wrong Lord. Our Lord is our finances. Our Lord is our health. Or or our Lord is another person. And when those things fail, our joy fails with them. It's the wrong Lord. It's the wrong Lord. In the book of Nehemiah, at a point when the nation of Israel can seemingly do nothing but mourn and cry out to God because of their circumstances, Nehemiah says to the people, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The word for strength is also translated refuge. And one of the things being taught there in Nehemiah is that when my reservoir reservoir for joy is empty, which it often is, when my circumstances don't add up to joy, which they rarely do, when either my failure or the failure of others leaves me grieving and without joy, the Lord who is joy supplies 
my strength to be joyful. I actually hide in his joy. I take refuge in his joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. If, if God were not fundamentally joyfully, joyful, how could he supply your joy? How could the joy of the Lord be my refuge if the, if the Lord wasn't full of joy? He couldn't be. But he is full of joy. He is. And those of you who struggle with having joy or keeping joy, please know the, the, the answer isn't more effort or, or a different prescription or a longer vacation. The answer is more of the Lord. It's more worship. It's more praise. It's more rejoicing over the Lord of joy. The truth of the matter is we, be, we become, the Bible tells us this, we become like what we worship. And rejoicing is a sign that the joy of the Lord is making its way deeper and deeper into our heart. And that's because the Lord is fundamentally joyful. So rejoice always. That's the first resolution. Second thing we're to resolve from Philippians 4, be reasonable. The word my Bible translates as reasonable is one that translators have kind of a hard time with. We just don't have an English equivalent for the word, and I'll give you the sum total of the ideas that this word is pointing to. These are the ones that I read this week that were trying to connect themselves to this word reasonable that's in your English Standard Version. The word gentleness, big-heartedness, goodwill, fair-mindedness, moderate, not defensive, a sweet reasonableness, which I like that. The old philosopher Aristotle, he used this word that we find here, to describe the opposite of strict justice. So this is an attractive word as you think through those different things I just said. Gentleness, big-heartedness, goodwill, fair-mindedness, not defensive. This is an attractive word. It describes an attractive sort of person. Most people like being around reasonable people. You're going to have friends if you discover this way to live. And if you live the opposite of this way, you might not have very many friends. But before you jump to conclusions, know this. Gentleness or reasonableness, as it's found here, it doesn't mean spineless. It's not talking about someone with no convictions. You know, some sort of doormat that just accommodates everyone and everything and everybody's ideas. No, no, it's not a spineless person, but rather it is a selfless person. It's a word twice used to describe elders in a local church. Gracious and gentle and selfless. And the passage says, let your graciousness, let your reasonableness, your gentleness, let it be known to everyone. Which is saying that this attitude should not be hidden, but it should be on full display in the relationships that you have. Your kids should know your graciousness, your gentleness, your reasonableness. They should see it. Your employees, if you're a boss, should see your graciousness. Your spouse should see this reasonableness in you. And of course, the people you go to church with, they should be quick to point it out because it's evident in your life. And on the surface, this command for reasonableness or gentleness, it seems unrelated to the command in verse 4 to rejoice. But there is a connection. Don't be fooled. There is a connection, a deep connection, actually. As I said, the people who are joyful are those who have been delivered from this obsession with themselves, this obsession with their immediate circumstances. And I think that is a prerequisite for reasonableness. You become more reasonable as you 
take the attention off of yourself. And I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, misery, misery loves company. Of course you have. People that focus on themselves and their own circumstances, what are they? They're often, very often, miserable. And what they do, these people, is they seek company. I'm miserable, so how can I make others miserable? I'll be an unreasonable jerk, and I'll turn my lack of joy into your lack of joy. And some of you are like, yeah, I know that person. And Paul gives us a specific reason, though, for seeking gentleness. It's because the Lord is at hand. And you can go two ways with interpreting this. You can say the Lord is at hand sort of spatially, meaning he's drawn near, he's close to you. Or you can say that the Lord is at hand chronologically, meaning Christ's return is is imminent, that it could be at any time. And I lean toward the latter of those two interpretations because I think it fits the context much better. Paul's mentioned in Philippians the last day, oh, several times. And so I think what Paul is saying is, is be reasonable because when Christ returns, you don't want to be caught in some petty argument that has no bearing on anything of eternal value. Don't be caught in one of those. Be reasonable. The Lord is at hand. Be reasonably gentle, gracious. The third imperative, the third resolution from, from Philippians 4, thankfully pray. Thankfully pray, really, instead of worry. It's a very famous verse, so you no doubt noticed how Paul frames the command to pray. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. He frames this command to pray as the antidote for worry. Don't worry about anything, he says. Instead, pray about everything. So the problem Paul is confronting through this command The problem he's confronting is worry. And worry is a problem, isn't it? My guess is everybody in this room today is worried about something. Aren't you? And the word here used for worry or anxiety is used used 25 times in the New Testament. And the definition that we gather from those uses is that of a divided mind. And one of the things that means is worry and anxiety, they, they quite literally tear you apart. They divide you, divide you. It's worry that dwells not on the present realities, not just on the present realities of life, but really on the what-ifs of life. You're a person who can't live in the present because you're so caught up on the, either the failures of the past or the unknowns of the future. I read someone this week who said, the person who worries is crucified between two thieves. The thieves are past regrets and future concerns. Their heart is always saying, man, I shoulda, I shoulda, I shoulda. And at the same time, it's saying, what if, what if, what if? But understand what the apostle is teaching here when he says, do not be anxious about anything. I don't think Paul is saying we, we, we should be so aloof and, and carefree that we're never realistically concerned for anything. That's not what he's saying. Here the word is used of a restless anxiety. It's the type of worry that steals our joy. It chokes out the word of God in our life. It divides our hearts and minds. It paralyzes our usefulness in God's kingdom work. That's the worry. And it's the worry that I know many of you experience. 
And so you look at these resolutions as they pile on top of each other, these commands, and you might be thinking, man, Paul's really asking a lot here, isn't he? First, he says, rejoice always. Not just sometimes, always. Then he says, don't worry about anything. Anything. And when he he says anything, it sounds like he really means it. Like anything. Don't worry about anything. And then he says, pray about everything in your life. Come on, Paul. Always, anything, everything. Let's get real. Who, who, Who can do this? Well, let me ask you a question. How's the alternative to what Paul is commanding? How's that working out for you? How is letting your circumstances determine your joy working out? Is that working? How's the anxiety and the worry about all the what-ifs in this world helping you sleep at night? How's that going? Is that working? How, How are these huge issues in your life, the ones that you're not praying about, how's that going? You see, Paul's not asking too much in these verses. He's providing the only solution. The only real answer is here. You see, he's not asking too much. And so let's look then real quickly at the result of these resolutions. The result, and you see it there in verse 7, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says, when you have been cultivating joy in your heart, when, when you've been looking to the Lord for His joy, joy that's not derived from your circumstances, but, but joy which is derived from the truth of the gospel, rooted in who God is, when you've been seeking to live in gentleness and reasonableness with your brothers and sisters in Christ, When you have, instead of worrying 24-7, when you've been entrusting yourself to God for Him to provide your needs, taking everything to Him in prayer, because you've been doing all of that in your time of need, in your hour of plight and trial, here's what God is going to do. He's going to give you peace beyond your comprehension. And I love the way Paul describes how the peace will come to you. It, It will come to you and it will guard you. It will guard your heart and mind. This is another military word. A a synonym for guard would be garrison. Peace will be like a garrison around you. I don't know if you remember way back to our study of Philippians in the fall of 2012. Some of you were not here for that. But some of you were, and we we talked about it in that study, that, that Philippi was a Roman colony. And history tells us that a vast number of Roman soldiers would have retired there in Philippi. And so that's why throughout the book, Paul would employ all this military language to connect to sort of the hearts of all these soldiers and all these proud Romans. His context would have understood exactly what he was saying. And additionally, since it was a Roman colony, it would have needed to be fortified and guarded by Roman soldiers. And because of this, I'm sure your typical Philippian slept in peace because their city was a guarded city. It was garrisoned by soldiers at all hours of the day and night. So Paul's saying, he's saying God's peace is just like that. You can rest easy because God's peace, it it surrounds you. It guards your hearts and minds. And let me just say to you this morning, that's the kind of peace we need, don't we? Receiving that peace begins with our with our cultivating peace with one another, with cultivating joy in our hearts, with cultivating reasonableness and gentleness with one another, and with our, with our praying earnestly and continually and always instead of worrying. 
We have a God that, that we know loves us and cares for us. And when we do these things, when we engage with Him these ways, the Holy Spirit comes and gives us confirmation that God's promise is true and that He will hold you up when there's nothing else in the world that's going to hold you up. God will hold you up. And maybe you don't have a relationship with God. Maybe you are distant from God. You've never put your trust in Jesus Christ. You've never acknowledged the fact that you're a sinner and you're in need of a Savior. And so peace has always been elusive. Worry has always owned your heart and mind. You don't know what it means to have joy or to rejoice in the Lord. Today you have an opportunity to put that behind you and to look to Christ and to see these things come alive. To see rejoicing as a part of you. To see worry fade away. To be more reasonable. To be fundamentally at peace because you're at peace with God. If you've never made that decision, if you've never put your trust in Christ, you should do that. And I'm not going to walk you through it or make you jump through a bunch of hoops or come down front or do anything like that. I'm just going to say to your heart right now, go to Christ, trust in Christ, repent of your sin, and throw yourself completely down at the feet of Christ and, and ask for his mercy and be a recipient then of not only God's salvation, but of God's joy. No, no more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. It's joy to the world. The outflow of Christmas, which we're definitely on the backside now, a week or so later, the outflow of Christmas is joy. And And the second coming, the thing we look forward to, not just the coming of Christ in a, in a stable, laid in a manger, but the coming of Christ in power and in victory and in glory and in exuberance. Man, there's joy and hope and peace found there. Let's pray together before we go to the communion table. Father, thank you for this time together this morning. Thank you for our time in your word. And Lord, as we look now to the Lord's Supper, this, this great blessing you've given us to enjoy together, Lord. I pray that you'd prepare our hearts to receive it with gladness. Um, and Lord, just uh, be with us as we look to take it rightly. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to ask our deacons to go ahead and, and come on forward this morning. If you've never taken the Lord's Supper with us here at Enid Enby Church, we practice open communion. So you don't need to be a member of our church to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper with us. You simply need to be a Christian. And, and what that means is you need to be a person who has trusted in Jesus Christ, has repented of their sins and put their faith uh, in Christ alone as uh, their Savior. If that's you, we invite you to take this this morning, to unite afresh your heart and mind with the finished work of Christ. Again, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian this morning, just Watch us as we observe this this morning. I hope you are blessed by our um, celebration of the Lord's Supper. If this is your first time to take it with us, we don't want to confuse you in any way, so we're going to pass out an element. You'll hold it. We'll take it together, then we'll pass out the other element. You'll hold it, and we'll take it together, uh, and then we'll be completed.